the Tall Ships America, and you are listening to A Bark, A Brig, and A Schooner, Walking to a Bar, a podcast where we get to know the history and the people in our Tall Ships community. As Nick noted last week, we are super excited to expand on our original idea for this podcast and introduce some new themes and features this season. So don't forget to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. For those that are interested, we do have some sponsorship opportunities available, so email manager at tallshipsamerica.org for more information. We are kicking off season two with a doozy of an episode. Captain Jamie Trost and I have known each other for many, many years. Today, we have a wide-ranging conversation about when best to quote Last of the Mohegans, the challenges of spending a summer in Mongolia, and when to finally give into the voice that's been telling you to jump on a ship and run away to sea already. So Jamie, welcome. Jamie, thank you so much for being here. I am super excited to learn your origin story. It is my <laughs> pleasure. I, I'm, I'm excited to learn it too. I'm not, I'm not quite sure if I have a full handle on it. Um, would you mind introducing yourself and the organization you are affiliated with currently? Sure thing. My name is Jamie Trost. I am currently the port captain for Grays Harbor Historical Seaport, and we operate the brig Lady Washington. Oh, that's excellent. How long have you been there for? I started as port captain in August of 2019, but I had previously done two hitches on board the Grays Harbor boats. I was relief captain for the entire summer of 2018, basically mid-May to end of August. And then I, long, long back, I volunteered on Lady Washington in 2003 for a month, immediately post her appearance as the interceptor in Pirates of the Caribbean. So she ah. used to have the, the Royal Navy paint scheme and, um, and we were, the organization was riding that wave pretty hard at that point. <laughs> That's cool showing up in port with those colors. Yeah, it was extremely recognizable, and you have all. <laughs> did Johnny Depp stand on this part of the deck? Yeah, yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. Right <laughs> yes, right there. <laughs> is this the boom that hit Orlando Bloom? Yep, this is the the boom bloom. <laughs> well, we have known each other for a very long time. I was trying to think. My first real memory of you is uh, complimentary. Yeah, the first real memory I have of you is in Jacksonville, Florida. And I think that was, <laughs> we had gone out to dinner with the Losies, and that was my first time really getting to know them and you. And then we were on our way back, and I remember you pointed out like a cockroach the size of my head. <laughs> and I was like, I hate this place. <laughs> so I was, yeah, and then, and that was my first clear memory of you. And then uh, obviously we worked together extensively in 2010 in the Great Lakes. And then it just kind of all went to hell in a handbasket from there. <laughs> I never got a handbasket. It was usually just a tote bag at all those festivals. Yeah, that, uh, agreed. Uh, I guess we, we must have crossed paths at one of the earlier Tallship festivals, but that one, I, I think it was more than just the Losies. It was the whole, all of the captains. Had, had dinner at some restaurant that was the, the captain's dinner for that but we we were all at separate tables and, and we ended that's up that's right that's at right fun, at a fun table yes there was a very large bottle of wine yes like, yeah, that was, <laughs> that. It, yeah that was i didn't even know they served those in restaurants i was like this is a whole <laughs> this is a whole other country down here this is great <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, 2009, that was uh, our joint event with Sail Training International. So from there, uh, I think you guys went to Bermuda. I did not go to Bermuda, but then we were in Charleston and Boston. Yeah, I signed uh-huh. off at that point and um, okay. John took over in the, later in that same weekend. Uh, I was still bouncing around. I think I was on Dennis Sullivan and I think one other ship um, that that summer. That was when I was I was going back and forth between Pride and something else pretty pretty constantly. Okay, and then was twenty ten the year of I will find you? (laughs) No, twenty thirteen was the I will find you year. Um, So for anyone who doesn't know, if you've ever seen Last of the Mohegans. It was a whole summer of, for some reason, quoting Last of the Mohegans, and we thought it was like the funniest thing ever. <laughs> well, the two things that hammered that home were that was when um, I had the first real, first and only real bout of the um, alopecia immune disease that I have. So yes. the the alopecia effect on, on my scalp made me so angry, I, sh- I had shaved it into a mohawk. Right, that's right. Oh. And we also had had, Kathleen and I hiked Isle Royale that summer when she had gotten injured. We ended up sort of in the middle of this wilderness island and I was going for, for assistance to the next ranger station. And we'd already made the jokes a number of times. So as I was leaving, she was imploring me to be safe and careful and she knew I would do all those things. And because there's only maybe one time in your life when you can do this in earnest, I grabbed her by the shoulders and said, you stay alive, no matter what occurs. I will come. I will find you. And then she told me to get the hell out of there. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. I can't, it's just, every so often it pops into my head and I was like, God, we really, really drove that into the ground that summer. <laughs> oh, that was super fun. It also uh, well, started in, in the right spot. We were on the St. Lawrence River, so we're not far from the Adirondack Mountains that are supposed to be the, the set of that. That particular oh, yes. story, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. We had a lot of, of tie-ins. <laughs> we did have a lot of tie-ins. And it was a really long summer. Like, the, God, it, it must have been 15 weeks or you guys for even longer. I know that we had, I had at least 13 or 15 ports that we went to. And it was, it went into September. It was, that was an epic summer. We were all a little loopy by the end of it. Well, a lot loopy by the, the end reenactment. of it. We had, we, had reenact, we had to reenact a battle. Yes. yes. <laughs> so um, obviously you and I can reminisce about uh, shared misadventures, but I wanted to. <laughs> so let's start with the tiny Jamie Trost. Whoa. Um, well, it's interesting. We mentioned that summer on the Great Lakes and the, the end of that was in Erie, in, which is my hometown. So I grew up in that Northwestern corner of Pennsylvania that that is the only part of Pennsylvania that touches the Great Lakes. During my childhood, I was either on the water or in the woods as much as possible, more more than I get to be now even, I think. (laughs) Um, My my first ever actual sailing experience was actually a, a tremendous misadventure. Someone, a family friend had rented a beach cottage in Erie and they had a sunfish. And my father and I, my father took me out sailing in it just as a, a quick here's what sailing is, is we we're going to go a couple hundred yards from the beach and come back and we got com- completely becalmed and then the fish and wildlife police came by and ended up finding him because we didn't have a, a life jacket that was the right size for me they were <laughs> 
so uh, not the most auspicious beginning in it but i had two uncles uh who were both really into competitive sailing one of them owned a catalina 30 so i learned more on that later on um and, and sort of the around the buoys racing format on wednesday nights uh, but before that even when the summers i was in first and second grade my parents decided before the word staycation was a thing, we had a 15 or 17 foot camper trailer and we would took it down to the, the campgrounds that is at the base of Presque Isle, which is a peninsula that forms the harbor that makes Erie. So the campground there is the last thing that isn't a state park. And the state park goes for about 13 miles of marsh and forest and beach. And my dad would go to work in the morning and come back. We just lived there for uh, an entire month of that summer. And I got to play around in all the marshes and the, the woods and the beaches. There was a, oh at that time, a really small, it still exists as an event center, but they've moved the nature center off the, of the site to a, a bigger building that's up the road. But at the time, there was this very small nature center that had all kinds of programs where you make things out of pine cones and driftwood and all the things on the beach. So living close to the water, but not on it, but uh, in the woods and the marshes, I think had a pretty profound effect on the things I'm still drawn to. Absolutely, it sounds idyllic. <laughs> I, and I later, in, uh, in late high school, early college, I lifeguarded there for a couple of years as well on the beaches. Cool. In fact, saw the first big Tall Ships event in Erie in 1993. I, I was obsessed with the idea of the, of the ships that had never actually worked on one just uh, because the the commitment to being on Niagara was was way too much for me to deal with as a, a, a high school student who had a summer job. <laughs> right. And um, but I knew all of them. They had a great brochure, and I was out at the beach that faces to the east. The, the beach eleven is the last one, and the ship started gathering for the parade of sail. And my supervisor was commenting about them, like, oh, look at all the boats. And I was pointing out which ones they were and, and some of their backstory. And I just remember the look on his face was like, well, where do you get all this? Like, oh, for sure, I have it in my bag. Do you, you remember who, do you remember who was there? Was it? Oh, uh, yeah, I remember exactly. That was, it was a great festival. All, clearly Niagara was there because uh, this is when Rose was still pre-movie on the East Coast. So she was oh, there. Wow. Uh, Pride 2 was there. I actually went and toured. That was the second time I saw Pride 2. Um, and so then this all happened around 4th of July weekend. So on my birthday, that's what I did. Is I, I stood in line for a while to go see Pride 2 <laughs> with no idea that I would later spend seven years in, involved with the organization as, as a partner captain. Providence was there. Um, Ooh, okay. so it was a very heavy sort of late 18th, early 19th century fighting sail appearance. And then the, the brigantines from Toronto just enough ships to, to cover the main pier and and sadly they expanded the festival the next year and they had a lot more they had 14 vessels uh, and it didn't do much better financially so it, it was kind of i think it ended up being a bit of a flop and that's why they didn't have another event there until niagara did theirs in 2010. uh the, in the second year of that i was working i had two jobs I was working at the beach and i also bartended at one of the uh, shoreside restaurants right right at the dock and the last day of the festival, I said, I'm going to go jump on one of those ships and run away. And <laughs> one waiter who worked with me from South Africa said, uh, you, you can't do that. If you go on one of the ships, they'll kick you off. <laughs> was disappointing. Did know. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, it discouraged me. But, but the reality is, yeah, they probably would have said, sure, we're shorthanded. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you. Exactly. Who, who, who's your emergency contact? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
after that summer, was that was that it for you, and you were hooked? No, it was yes and no. Um, so clear. I actually remember a time when the the previous incarnation of Niagara was oh the was the which is the one that was never actually launched. Uh, they started it. Um, I think just after the Second World War and then ran out of money. I, they finished it in the 60s and it, it was just on blocks on State Street as an exhibit. Oh. It was never oh. in the water. I remember going to that and my my father was a volunteer liaison. I had tried to volunteer but I was too young. Uh, my father volunteered as a liaison for handling some of the media affairs on a launch day. Okay. And so I got to be, uh, I, I saw the launch of Niagara for a 13 year old it, launching a ship with a crane is one of the most profoundly boring things. <laughs> I mean, clearly didn't have any of the rig in yet. It was just the finished hull. The governor, the mayor, and every other politician around gave a speech for a while. So it was <laughs> thinking, when, 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 is, when are they going to put the masks in? <laughs> are they going to fire off the cannon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and later, about nine months after that, was the first time the, the new, then at that time, new Pride of Baltimore 2 came to town. Um, oh. And so I went down and saw her at the public dock. So in, in that span of time, like two of the largest influences on, on my sailing career would, would come into my life. I wanted to keep sailing. I kept doing the sort of around the buoys races when I could. I was, and I actually joined the crew team at UNCW. Well, the University of North Carolina at Wilmington and, and rode there for a while, which I think had a, as much, I mean, well, it's not sailing, but, but clearly that, that sense of, of a, a boat awareness and, and the necessity for precise teamwork yes. was really, really useful later on in my career. I'm and sure. I've been back to Wilmington on a ship once, probably two went in there in 2009, actually just before you and I um, had our first real meaningful meeting in Jacksonville. <laughs> we were coming from Wilmington. So the first oh, time okay. I came back there in ages. And when I was on the crew team, we had this boat, a crappy boathouse down right by the this lift bridge at the Cape Fear River. The Cape Fear is a is a pretty significant river current wise. I think it's a lot of runoff in the spring. And we didn't have a dock. We had to beach launch our boats, which <laughs> even though it's in the south in February, in North Carolina, that's a pretty cold and nasty yes. experience. Yes. Uh, and then I did a, uh, to, to keep with the keeping in, in the woods idea, I did, I wanted to do something like an SEA or a OCF pro program in college, but I couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. And um, all, the same thing with going overseas, but there was a, a great program that I'm not sure still exists called the National Student Exchange. I mean, under that program, I think 150 different schools were partner organizations and there was a deal between them that if you got accepted into this program and you did a year or a semester at one of the other schools your all of your credits were guaranteed to transfer so it was a, a way of getting students a, a different experience without um, having to to spend the money on on a transatlantic or transpacific right. plane ticket and also guaranteeing that you weren't going to take a step backwards academically mm -hmm your credits would transfer. So I used that to go for a semester to Humboldt State University, which is in Arcata, California, about six hours north of San Francisco. Oh, wow. And I lived in a, a sweet uh, sort of small, like massive apartment. There were, I think there were 10 of us sharing like two bathrooms and a kitchen. <laughs> the, great, the great thing about it is within five minutes, I could be deep into the um, humble redwoods uh city park which led to a state park that was behind it and just miles of trails in the redwood trees oh, in, that's awesome. in this 
coastal city on the in this kind of forgotten they actually call that section of california the lost coast because you're yeah there's not eureka is a town of about thirty thousand people that's just south of there but after that there's there's not any significant population center in either direction for probably 200 miles or something yeah yeah crescent city california right at the oregon border is about 80 miles away and that's even a, that's a tiny little blip of a town as well so that was pretty amazing to to experience that oh that's so cool i've never seen the redwoods i would i would love i would love to explore that area northern california appeals to me um greatly probably because it reminds me a lot of new england like really green lots of forests <laughs> i don't do well in a dry climate sure. <laughs> <I will. laughs> but <laughs> Because of the time frame, I mean, sadly, the, the reason that those towns are there is that they were they were logging the forest pretty uh, yes. at the time. Keeping with a sort of New Englandish theme, there's a ton of Victorian architecture because yeah. of the time that it came up. So it's, right. it seems a little in, in, incongruous that there's these fancy Victorian houses in this rugged, forlorn wilderness. But but that was <laughs> that, that's what the is. So where did you go after after Humboldt? That was just a semester, but um, opened up a couple, opened up my eyes. I'd, I'd never at that point been west of Michigan, so the 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 idea that there was a whole new world was out there, and that led me to the next step was I had heard about a program called the JET program, which was the Japan Exchange and Teaching program. Mm. When I was out in Humboldt, I had one semester left back in North Carolina, which I, I, I or two, yeah, two semesters left in North Carolina. And uh, the last semester, I studied some Japanese. I applied for the program because I graduated. I graduated in December, so it was a weird. I didn't fit into any of the, the yeah. normal academic. <laughs> yeah. I went back out west. My youngest uncle, my dad's youngest brother, lives in San Francisco or south of there now, but at the time lived in in town and went out there. And um, I actually interned for Mother Jones magazine oh, uh, cool. for six months. And I worked for their website which was fascinating at the time because the early days of the internet, we were trying to yes. write our own code. It, it was <laughs> yeah. good. There's still, and the, the great thing is that there's still stories I wrote during that time that it, because it's the internet haven't gone away. And I, I did some work for the print magazine too. It was a, a pretty fascinating, eye-opening experience there. This is their focus at the time was on money and politics. And that was a, a really big thing. So they had a lot of research into who was donating to to who, um, which, as we know today, is still is still a hot right. topic. Right. And in the midst of that, I interviewed and then got accepted into the Jet program. So I'm headed to Japan. I come home. I was on a, a on a wait list for a little while, and I, I get the call. So I I know I'm going to be there at least a year in Japan, possibly two. You could be at that time. You could stay as, as long as three years. So oh, I don't wow. want to see my family. Uh, now you can say now indefinitely because um, they've realized really? really, well, it's, yeah, it's so expensive to get someone there. But at the time they wanted, they want, they didn't want people to get into a rut, which is very easy to do in in the job of an assistant English teacher. But I could stay as long as three years. So I, I went home to see my family. I'm in Erie for the summer. My work visa got delayed in processing because of the, um, or just the logistics of it. Sure. And Appledore Four happened to be in Erie that summer the only summer that they were there doing day sales a friend of mine from high school had gone down the, the moment it showed up on the news that they had, had arrived in court he went down with his resume and, and got a job <laughs> he had become the, the sort of senior deckhand my parents said hey there's another ship in town I say cool I see this friend of mine when we go to visit it and he said are you in town for a while we're looking for crew you should apply <laughs> 
So I ended up working for five or six weeks on Appledore 4 in Erie that summer. Um, it, the, uh, Tiffany Crewan and I crossed paths there a little bit. She was doing some relief captain work on, on that. I think she had just gotten her license at that point. Okay. I believe that's true. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and a couple other sailors that I would encounter later in my career where we, where we just had this vague memory of each other from like five or six years earlier. Right, right. That was just a short... <laughs> stint on there and then I did I ended up flying out and I spent uh I, I, I spent two years total in Bisecho which is it translates in Japanese um from the Japanese as the town of beautiful stars oh sounds really idyllic it's a little it bit of a made-up name Japan is really <laughs> Japan is really good at consolidating resources and what happened to that town is there had been four villages in this 49 square mile section of of Okayama Prefecture in the southwest corner of the state or of the of the, the prefecture. With that, around the the turn of the nineteenth and twentieth century, had been struggling. So they decided, well, let's all become one. Let's consolidate into one town. And one of them was called Miyama, which was beautiful mountain. One was called Hoshida, which was starry field. And so they they combined the names into beautiful star. But they stuck with it. They actually built an observatory. And since nineteen eighty nine, when that observatory was built, they've been pushing for the dark sky movement in Japan, which if you've ever been to Japan, knows the the lights of the city are pretty deafening, I guess not deafening, but they're, they're pretty blinding to anything mm -hmm. that you can see in the night sky. And this this place was up, not a very high hill, but you know, a couple thousand feet above sea level, in, which is the highest part of that part of the prefecture, had a, a pretty clear southern horizon if the towns to the south along the coast would turn off their lights. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they've been pushing for this for, for decades now and, and had been for seven or eight years, almost 10 years by the time I got there. So that, that town is, is 4,000, at the time was 4,000 people spread out over almost 50 square miles. Uh, my nearest neighbors who were, were Westerners were 15 and 20 miles away. Okay. So I was just by myself. And actually, you you saw at the conference, Matthew Perry, the pilot that we had discussing the crew resource management or cockpit resource management in, in one of the sessions, was one of those neighbors. So he and I would, uh, once a week, I had a car, he had an apartment that had a, a cable TV hookup. So I would drive up to his place, we'd make dinner and we'd, we'd watch CNN because we, we didn't have a lot of other outlets no. <laughs> figuring out what was going on in the world. <laughs> Oh, well, that part in particular with Matthew is fascinating to me that we, we spent all this time in this isolated existence in Japan thinking about the decisions being made at high levels of leadership in the world. And, and so we got to come sort of full circle this year in, in discussing what, what the role of leadership is and, and safety culture on board ships and airplanes. So that's yeah. an interesting tie-in decades later. I'm, well, I think so too. I also think it's rather impressive that you guys stayed in touch all these years. Although, to be completely honest, the friends that I keep in touch with the most from my college years are the ones I did my study abroad with. It's a formative experience um, when you're kind of, when you're out of your element like that. It forges very strong bonds, which of course translates into the tall ships when you're in this like extreme adventure. <laughs> But I think I, I am absolutely fascinated by Japanese culture and I would love to go to Japan. I find it really interesting and it must have been so fascinating to be the, I assume you were the only non-Japanese person in that village or for miles around besides Matthew? 
I w- so in that village, I was the only uh, Western foreigner. There were a couple of um, Chinese families that lived in the town. One of my students actually was one of the daughter of one of those families. And there was for a little while, the intern at the observatory was a, a guy from Sri Lanka. But I was the only non-Asian person who okay. miles and miles. And Matthew was like the third closest neighbor. And he was a little bit to the north in a slightly larger city of about 20,000, 25,000 people. He was only, he and I were only there a year together. We overlapped. Um, he'd been there a year and then I got there and I stayed a year after he left. And I was never as, as close with, with his replacement at all. But his town was really cool that it had a, a Zen temple that was really beautiful. And then it has a Bichu Takahashi Jo is a, a castle. Japan has lots of castles. This one is special mm-hmm. in that in the era before the Edo period, when they sort of unified and, and closed down for two and a half centuries, mm-hmm. the castles weren't the big stately town square type affairs to show the the dominance and the um the the like impose upon the people that the shogun or the daimyo of that area was in charge they built them in these remote protected locations so bichu takahashijo is up the side of a mountain where it's probably a five mile hike to get there if you're going in the era of medieval japan you with your whole um entourage it'd be days to get up to the top of it and it's actually the site of um akira kurosawa's movie throne of blood which is the word for word Japanese translation of Macbeth. That's the the site that they they use for for that castle. So that was a great <laughs> that's a great easy. If you go to Japan, you, you probably should see a castle while you're there. Um, and so we had this really handy one that was was special among Japanese castles because most of those had been destroyed in the um, as the country was at war and they wanted to erase traces of um, of the opposition to the Tokugawa government. Most of the castles that existed in the 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 Muromachi and Sen, um, Sengoku periods had been destroyed and, and replaced with these more city center ones, but that one remains. I, and there okay. might be a couple other ones, but that's the only one I know of. Oh, that's so interesting. That's pretty I fascinating. Would, for those who caught it, Matthew Perry is also the name. <laughs> <laughs> is also the name of the, correct me if I'm wrong, the naval officer that quote unquote reopened Japan if they, after they had. Uh, shut themselves off from the rest of the world for two and a half centuries, but the way he went about it was rather undiplomatic. <laughs> yeah, He's like, was... I'm going to destroy your entire culture unless you start trading with us, starting with that castle right there. <laughs> it was a pretty sledgehammer school of, of, uh, of diplomacy, to say the yes. least. Yeah, fascinating. Yes. When we were there, when the my friend Matthew Perry and I were in Japan, uh, Friends was still on the air. <laughs> so that, the actor Matthew Perry, that was actually more recognizable as a name to I'm everyone sure. than the naval officer. And uh, that that Matthew Perry, the, the naval officer, actually is the younger brother of Oliver Hazard Perry, who's famous for the Battle of Lake Erie. And the famous painting of Oliver Hazard Perry shifting his flag from Lawrence to Niagara in the heat of battle, there's a picture of a, a young, like a kid who looks far too young to be in a battle entreating right. him to sit down and not get shot at and that that's actually his younger brother Matthew who <laughs> decades later would, would open Japan in this very very they it's so calculated I, I could I could go on forever about it so <laughs> I think Nick actually works. did a Nick act, I think Nick did a um, episode on Matthew Perry last season but um so you're 
Yeah, it's really interesting. The whole family is fascinating, but um, but that's not why we're here today. We're here to talk about Jamie Trost. Um, the <laughs> so you were in Japan for two years. I'm very jealous. And what did you do when you got back from Japan? Uh, well, readjusted. How old were you at this point, yeah. by the way? Uh, I was 20. I just turned 22 when I moved to Japan, and, okay. and so I just turned 24 when I left. Okay. Um, and to elaborate on that experience, the, you, you talk about that fascination with Japanese culture. And, and I think in many ways, my, my life there, you got to see the sort of paradoxes in amazing relief. So mm -hmm. there's the observatory in my town, this farming town, mostly rice farming, surrounded by rice fields. The town had, about five years before I moved there, painstakingly created this historical park that was a an exact an exacting in, in terms of the craftsmanship and the details an exacting replica of a, a late 1400s early 1500s japanese village complete with it had a, a replicated wooden castle everything there was no stonework but it was the they had a farmhouse they had a village center they had all these these great um, sort of traditional Japanese aspects, and and I volunteered there when I, when school wasn't in session because I had two options. One was to sit in the at that stage you could still smoke indoors, so the the school board office was just the smoke filled place with <laughs> shuffling papers, and I could sit there and study Japanese for eight hours a day, or I could go, you know, help paint fences and 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 do some actual construction work on the site, or um, oftentimes I'd be in costume as in that blue. This so fortunately for me, the Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai, had not come out yet, so there was no reference to that. But it's the same garb that they were wearing, that okay. sort of blue, the, the the blue kimono and hakama. Um, it's not a kimono, but the shirt. Um, so so I'd go in there and do that. So right next to this, these are some great photos I have of the observatory with the the watchtower from the castle next to it to sort of highlight these different eras of Japan. And yeah. I'd spend this time in in studying Japanese archery and. Um, and Japanese kendo's swordsmanship, the way of the sword, in this remote village, pouring over books to study kanji and learn the language. And on the weekends, I'd go to these like glitzy, uh, concrete, highlit cities with right. my friends. <laughs> so the, the, the two different cultures of Japan were were sort of always present in my life when I was there. Yeah, it sounds like I. Yeah, I. I think that's why I find the culture so interesting. It's so hyper modern, but at the same time, they at least and correct me if I'm wrong, cling very strongly to their history and maintaining that history and teaching that history. So I find the dichotomy is that the right word between the two really fascinating. Anyway, it's it's a really interesting culture. It's so different. Uh, and I think um, <laughs> to, to close up with the idea that um, I said at the beginning with the naming of the town, Bise, it. It shows that Japan is really good at consolidating resources for sort of the betterment of the whole culture, and and they do this constantly. And the the sort of sad truth of it is that uh, as a political entity, that town no longer exists because as a for a, a poor farming town with a lot of the population moving out to cities and dwindling, it was subsumed into the neighboring city of Ibarra in 2004. So it still exists geographically, but right. the district of this other city now. Um, and what that meant is that I was the second English teacher to live there. Um, my predecessor set the bar impossibly high for me. He was... <laughs> An English guy in his 30s who had uh, taught Japanese before he'd gone. He, in the 80s, you could just come to Japan and be an English speaker and teach Japanese under the table. So he did that, then got a degree in Japanese from school in England, had done a nine-month 
uh, study abroad in Tokyo. When he went back, met a Japanese exchange student at his school. They were engaged the first year he moved there, and then they got married, and they lived ah. in for two years. So he, between the two of them, there was no problem. They could, couldn't tackle in either language. They're both basically bilingual. They're, they're 30 years old. They're living with all the people who are young professionals in the town. So here I come in with a semester of college Japanese at 22, and, and they had almost the same expectations. Yeah. It was very difficult. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> and then my predecessor and one more person afterwards actually lived in the town. And, and once it became not its own town, but a district of the neighboring city, they still have an English teacher who travels up to the, the schools there once a week or twice a week. But no one, none of the English teachers since 04 have lived there. So only four of us as English teachers ever, in fact, lived in the town. Oh, oh that's too bad. Yeah, but yeah. it makes it sort of like even more sort of astounding to me sometimes that, that I got to be one of the people to do that because it's a that part of Japan a lot of rural culture around the world is, is rapidly changing and that part of Japan is not what people think of when they think of Japan they think of mm-hmm. bullet trains and pachinko parlors and yeah. <laughs> so but to, to be able to see that was was pretty astounding and I, I did get I got to go back a couple of years ago as a, because I've kept up the language enough that I was able to be interpreter for a trip by the Association of Nature and Forest Therapy when they went and explored some of the, the therapy and health forests of Japan. So oh, cool. I, this was three and a half years ago, um, almost four years ago, and it was the first time I was back in, in 18 years. Yeah. Um, and I did get to go, I got to spend three days in, in, I stayed with friends in the city that now possesses Bisei. So I didn't actually stay in Bisei, but we did go up and visit the school and the, yeah. there's still, there's still a woman who works at the historic park, Yumegahara, that, um, the, 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 that was there when I was there. Um, <laughs> so she barely recognized me. I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so, um, because I knew that life would start closing in in the way that life often does. I think I had this premonition. I wanted to see some stuff. So when I left, I saved up a bunch of my money the last year. I traveled pretty extensively throughout Asia when I was there. I spent, I saw as much of Southeast Asia as I I think I could, including um, being able to to see a a lot of the Burmese, Myanmar countryside, which Mm -hmm. um, sort of, uh, every time I hear about the struggles of that country. I know. You, yeah. you have a connection to my yeah my my right? grandfather uh was in the military and he was i believe i hope my dad's not listening um and he he was in india and burma so my dad um growing up had always heard about his adventures there and he was my dad speaks a little teeny tiny bit of burmese but oh, he wow. and my mom traveled there uh he and my mom traveled there rather extensively i want to say bur- 10 years ago, like before all of this, when it was still pretty closed off. Um, and, uh, and that was it. And also Jen Spring um, had traveled there as well. So um, they loved it. My parent, Jen, it was one of her most favorite cities. My parents absolutely loved going. They, they went to the same places. Like they went fairly regularly for like five years and like made, made friends and always oh. stayed in the same place. And like, just really loved it but then as the political situation got more and more unstable they just didn't feel like they could they could keep going back 
But Southeast Asia is definitely some place that I find really fascinating. My dad kept trying to get us to go with him, but like the young idiots that we were, we're like, no, work's too important. I can't get the time off. And it was, right. I regret it. I do. But um, like, but yeah, but I would love like Cambodia, fascinating, Vietnam. Yeah, I just think it's it's a really interesting area. A little daunting, yeah, I, <laughs> but interesting. I did that um, mostly a lot of it traveling just alone or, or sometimes it'd be a one friend. Uh, um, in fact, when I went to, I went to uh, Myanmar and Cambodia in the same trip with an Australian friend of mine, um, it was pretty, pretty, I think saying life-changing is might not be too much of a stretch there. The, mm -hmm. Going to some of those places, especially seeing Tulsa in prison, the killing fields, realizing how, mm -hmm. how vividly real and how recent to our history, yes. those sorts of things were. Um, yes. So, and I also, the summer before the middle of my time there, I spent the summer in Mongolia. Oh, um, cool. fascinating too. Yes. I took, the, that was, I took the ferry to Korea, spent some time in Korea, went up to Mongolia, got to see a bunch of that country. Wow. Um, How is that? Mongolia. Oh, it was wild. It's just, I just, like, yeah. Everything that you can imagine. I and mean, the, the capital city is very Soviet block style right. it, it, statues of all the it's actually the mongolian leaders that not, not fortunately not a lot of russians involved in that because they still right. have even though they were sort of a satellite state they they right. kept their own their own independence um and then getting out into the countryside it's just rolling expanses of uh, of grass and horses i spent three days in an extremely uncomfortable wooden saddle on this ride on you can get a bus at the at that time. You could get a bus from Ulaanbaatar to basically anywhere in the country, and, and it would depart the station in the capital city Ulaanbaatar on time and go to where it was going, probably with major delays. But you right. could get there. Getting back in was a complete roll of the dice. The, <laughs> you essentially just went to the local petrol station and waited. I had a Mongolian phrase book. I, I learned to say enough things to, to get around. And you'd ask someone if they were going a certain place and then negotiate a price. And it was a Jeep, a bus, even the buses at some stage were a negotiation for ticket price. Then one of the most striking ones, we were leaving the old capital, the Genghis Khan capital is called Korkorum. And it's famous for this giant, the largest temple in Mongolia is there. We were leaving there and we negotiated the price in the back of this truck with these people. And then they drove us two miles outside of town and said it was going to be double the price. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but double the price was it was going to be you know four dollars instead of two dollars. Distinguished couple that was traveling sort of next to me and I just shrugged our shoulders and said, okay, fine. Mm, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> we appreciate your hustle. So. Yeah, exactly. That is very cool. I um, a friend of mine uh, hosts a travel show, and she had the opportunity to get to go to Mongolia and film, but she needed someone to go with, and she reached out to me. And unfortunately, it was right during the middle of a tall ships challenge in 2014, oh. and so I was like, there was no way. I was like, I was like, I'm sorry, this is my job. <laughs> I was like, I can't right. go. So she ended up canceling the trip, but she was like, it was like all expenses paid, and it was <clears> all like because they were filming. So it was all like the super cultural things that you would do all throughout Mongolia, you know, like everything, you know, it was because it's a TV show. So that, that I don't have many regrets in my life, but, and there's no way I could have gotten out of doing like 
the tall ships challenge. You know, there's I mean, like no way could, I could have gotten doing the tall ships challenge. You're like, peace out, I'm going to Mongolia. But we wouldn't that be having this interview. There'd, there'd be someone else interviewing. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. But that that was a huge. That is a huge regret. And I was like, yeah. So, but anyway, I am very jealous that you got to go. I I find that that the physical landscape just absolutely stunning out there. And what a fascinating, fascinating culture. I do have a question for you. Did you have the yak butter tea? Not the tea, but there was the um, the fermented horse milk that is basically the national drink. It very low <laughs> alcohol percentage was something that there would be a, a, on every bus ride. There was a, a cup of this that just got passed around. <laughs> Sometimes there would be horse hair in the, in the <laughs> cup, and it was just a thing. It's called arag. Um, That's what it is. Yes, you're okay. and. Uh, I think the Russian word is kumis or something like that. I forget what it is, but arag is the Mongolian. And yeah, it was just sort of, here you go. We're going to have this lightly alcoholic drink, including the driver. <laughs> hey, uh, why not? What are you going to hit? I mean, there's nothing to hit, really. <laughs> so. Yeah, and one of those trips, the, the, the same one I discussed where we had to, we had to renegotiate the price, we're in the back of this, this big old Russian um, open back truck. And somewhere in the middle of us getting to the next place we were going to, a guy that we were with who's wearing the, the sort of traditional Mong Mongolian garb with a fedora as well. Yeah. He just bangs on the cab and the truck stops and he grabs his, his bag and he just starts wandering up the hillside. And we just watched him <laughs> or as the truck drove away, we watched for probably 10 minutes before we lost sight of him. And there were two, there were two or three little um, gear or which, which is the Mongolian word for yurt mm -hmm. up on this hillside. And, uh, and he was just, you know, had been to the city, got some stuff, and was was going home now. I guess. Um, yeah. And that, like, how do you even, like, how do you even know when, when to hit on the cab? And, yeah, I was gonna say, oh, I was like, the <laughs> this rock looks familiar. Fascinating, just how, um, yeah, how how in touch with the landscape that 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 culture remains in an era. Absolutely. Or I mean, remain. I mean, this was twenty more than twenty years ago. With the yeah. idea of having regrets, uh, I'd saved up a bunch of money, decided that. I was going to take the long way home. When I left, I spent a couple of days uh, to see the things I hadn't seen in Kyoto, the old capital city. Flew out, uh, went to Korea for a week or so because there was that, that's another fascinating country. Um, yes. And then connected through Singapore and went spent six weeks in Madagascar, oh, and then cool. another six weeks in uh, so Southern Africa. So Zimbabwe, Zambia, South Africa total. Milder regret that I didn't stay longer. I was a little concerned about like you know what what sort of funds I had for this this trip, and then also like three months. And the first hitch of that uh, in Korea at the time, not a lot of people spoke English. I didn't speak much Korean except to ask if people had rooms and food and those sorts of things. I did have I think one or two conversations with people in Japanese Japanese tourists who were traveling there. And then in my, my French at the time was not really good either. So in Madagascar, I was kind of isolated <laughs> traveled for a couple of days with a Japanese guy who was, was there. Um, and so for six weeks, I didn't have uh, an actual conversation in English yeah. with, yeah. <laughs> with anyone. Yeah. Um, and that was a pretty profound experience to, to go through. I'm sure. Writing letters to people was the most communication that I had, but there was no hope of ever getting them. Right. Was, I had no return address, so I wasn't going to. Right, get right. <laughs> and I think I got to, to check my email once every two or three weeks when, right. when they were on an internet cafe. So. Yep, the old dial-up hotmail yep. took forever. That was back when um when getting an email was like a thing you 
oh yeah wanted oh i got an email instead of yes yeah exactly it was a it was a gift it was a gift from the interwebs it really was like i get back home i'm trying to figure things out and i was actually looking for jobs in environmental education all through that winter so i got i got back i left japan in late july i got back sometime in uh you know just before the holidays i guess spent the holidays in, in back in my hometown trying to figure out what, what what it meant to live in america again right right um, and then was applying for jobs uh in environmental education and encountered i actually the, the the two hot contenders for the the next ship i would work on were adventurous uh, which had been, they lost out because they had a only volunteer position and inland ah. seas in um in sutton's bay michigan had basically the same job but but it was a paid position so mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've just spent the last four months not working <laughs> and traveling, so I could, I, could use, I could use a job that pays, um, and so ended up there, which um, I think because of the mentorship that both Tom Kelly and the, who was the executive director and, and sort of senior captain to the organization, and Remy Champ, who was the primary captain, because of b- both of their attention the their their guidance i think that was what led me to be continuing to pursue the career because the mm-hmm. tom was all about always make yourself better no matter what it is and so licensing was a way to do that and remy had uh he, because he was born in belgium and and then eventually migrated immigrated to the u.s um and had to get his credentials transferred over and it was also a he had a um engineer's license and a um and a deck license he had navigated the system so much that he had a lot of good guidance for what you what you should and shouldn't do at back mm-hmm. at that era. I don't know if I would have, have carried on. I, I mean, it's, it's possible, but the, those two guys um, had a profound influence on where I would go with my career. And, right. and Remy's not, he's retired from sailing. I guess he has his own boat and, and travels with that now. He's still an amazing artist. Tom sadly passed away about five years ago. Right. Um, the spring so mm-hmm. but remained up to the almost the very end uh, a mentor to me through the career so that was a I made the right choice going there and on top of that about two months after I got there Kathleen and I met in a coffee shop in oh, Traverse City so yes. if I had to go on adventurous alumni no knocks on your gorgeous ship but I know I, you always speak very fondly of Traverse City I, I have yet to go but um, I know you and Kathleen were really really happy there a sweet little town, great little program, or I shouldn't say great little program, that sounds condescending, but a great program, <laughs> a great town. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a great program. It's a little, I mean, it's a, one of the smaller tall ships, uh, the, one of the smaller vessels that gets captured under the, the phrase tall ship. And, and by design, I mean, it was the, Tom was really smart when, because they, when they started that program, they ran on a chartered vessel through the local tall ship company for a number of years before they actually bought their, decided to have their own build. And when they did, they used, they used a design that had already been approved for, I think, Liberty, which is now free to be out in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Already, that, that, that ship already existed. So Inland Seas is the same hull with some modifications to to accommodate the program that they run. So it, it, and it has all the great, like it's the maximum length before you get into some bigger regulation changes, the maximum passenger size before mm-hmm. things get really complicated. It, it was one of those designed to maximize your ability to operate. Right, so, right. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing, they're not pretending to be some historic 
replica that they just want a boat that people can learn on. Yeah, and people do. I mean, they have an ROV on board, which I think is really cool. Um, uh, I don't, they probably didn't have it when you were there, but yeah, but no, Inland Seas, we worked with them uh, 2019. Um, and that was really nice to be able to learn about their their program because they usually have so many education programs they can't participate in the Teleships Challenge, but they were able to this time and that was a real pleasure to kind of get to know them and the science uh, that they do on board is really cool. Well, the weird, his, the, the sort of trajectory happenstance, whatever, serendipity of those things of that. The current captain there, Ben Hale, was actually the deckhand on the ship the year before I got there. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we went for about 10 years of going through the fleet. We had never met each other, but really? he went out. Yeah, then he left there and, and he spent some time on Amistad, which was my next ship after that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, we kept going from ship to ship, uh, never meeting each other. And everyone would always asks us, oh, you must know so-and-so because of this. And <laughs> you, you sailed on this ship at this time. Yeah, I just missed him by <laughs> months or six months or whatever the time frame was. And, and but since then, he and I have gotten to be friends. I actually have been back on, I've been back to Traverse City on a bunch of occasions, but mm -hmm. I was, I got to be captain of Inland Seas on two different times. And the last time was in 2019 after they were back from the tall ships. And that one was, there was a University of Michigan class and a professor on board that were writing a paper about the, um, there's a type of algae called Chlodifera that decides that one of the islands just west of Traverse City in Lake Michigan, the South Manitou Island, has this point to the southeast corner, I think, um, and that, that's where all the chlorifera go to die. And <laughs> they don't, no one knows why. It's the chlorifera graveyard of the Great Lakes. So we, we huh. spent about, uh, eight or ten hours one day just basically holding station, taking different samples uh, on this, off this one spit of land in, in this very, um, we're trying to hold as still as we could and, and sort of shift over and run these patterns of, of different depths and things. So I, I don't think the papers come out yet. It's been pretty fascinating to be involved in that level sure. on, on a ship <laughs> that, that, um, that I that started out as a deckhand on and I'm still sort of trying to figure out which one was the peak in the throat halyard. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so where did you go? So then you were in Amistad. Were you ever on a Highlander Sea then? No, no, no. Our, our paths, Ben and I, I did not follow. Not that closely, path. not that closely. Uh, we had some similarities early on. I did Amistad for the first, that, that was a, a definite challenging situation. It was the first time that ship had left uh, the sort of Long Island, Block Island, Rhode Island Sound waters mm -hmm. and gone south. So uh, a lot of really big events going to Baltimore for the first time, uh, going to the South Carolina, there was a, um, a lot of discussion about that. that someone from the Myrtle Beach area, I think co at Coastal Carolina College, had asked the organization, hey, can you come visit? And the organization's stance at the time was, and this is timely now, that as long as the Confederate flag is still flying over the, ca the, the Capitol building of South Carolina, Amistad will not visit the state. Oh. And those people wrote back to Amistad and said, it is precisely because the Confederate flag is still flying over the Capitol building that we need you to come. Wow. So, uh, Myrtle Beach doesn't have a dock that will work for any sort of tall ship, but down just south of there in Georgetown, there is a marina there. And, and so we went there and every, I think it was sixth grader. It was, it was a grade level somewhere late elementary school. So either fourth, fifth or sixth, but I think it was every sixth grader in the state of South Carolina came for a deck tour of the, of the ship in the two weeks that we were there. 
Oh. And nonstop. And when there's a, oh, and I think it's an AME church. That, this is years and years ago, so I don't remember. But we went to a church for ecumenical service. When they were giving the service, the the preacher had a, a prayer that was personally written for him by his friend, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, to celebrate the significance of the ship coming to that state. What? So, That's pretty, pretty neat. <laughs> I'm sure. I, that's absolutely incredible. It's close personal friend. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's really awesome. Like, like, like you are. Yeah, sure. As you are. Yeah. Nobel Prize winner. Yeah, no big deal. So, and then Amistad, where did you go from Amistad? That one was, um, there was a little bit of strain on being away as much as it was. And I wanted, uh, I wanted to move up. I wanted to, to do something else. I'd been mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years on inland seas. I had my license. I'd done this offshore trip. Sultana was looking for their second captain ever. And, uh, and so I applied. They actually had offered the job to someone with more experience. And then that person bailed. And then um, they said, hey, we're still looking. So oh. I, got, I got the opportunity to go there. I don't think if I could envision what's an what's what's the perfect first command for someone. Sultana's right around there. You've got a lot of interesting, complex seamanship that, and, and I had because of Amistad, I had some familiarity with the, the topsail schooner, the the brailing foresail, all those sort, sorts of things. And but the ship's small; she's 50 feet on deck, so there's, it, it's pretty easy to handle. It operates in waters that are protected but but can be challenging because the chesapeake bay's mm-hmm. got a lot, a lot of shallow spots right you have to on your toes even even with a small ship like that uh and then just the tremendous talk about a, an organization that has uh, a deep volunteer organization the, yes the, the town involvement i think people in town knew who i was before i knew who anyone was that was just a great experience and and the uh, the the historical t- parallels in that too is that the when the ship was originally built in Boston and and taken over to England to be bought by the British this is the original vessel back in the 1700s the first captain of her was this young lieutenant who I think was a year younger than I was when the, at the time he had taken command of the original ship and was actually um was born in the colony he was born in in Philadelphia his family had been there even though they were loyalists to the crown. So here, the, here I am, two hundred and thirty odd years later, also from Pennsylvania, around the same age, getting to take my first command of of, of one of the more exacting replicas out there. Yeah. And, and th- those are some of the friendships too. Or that that first crew that I sailed with are all re- still really tight. That one, in the two and a half years I was there, there are two couples that I hired, not as couples, who are now married for. Yeah. Uh, or more yeah and you got married <laughs> on board as well right yeah we did yeah so yeah. Uh, there, was, there was one marriage i think when she was still in the shipyard and then kathleen and i got married on the ship in 2003 uh, on the exact same day at the exact same time 70 or 80 miles away over in bivalve new jersey uh, jesse briggs and megan wren were married oh. on atm airwall <laughs> which we didn't discover until years and years later but so there were, there were two weddings <laughs> on traditional sailing vessels in the mid-atlantic on the same day at, i think, oh, that's the, I think the same time so. yeah that's lovely <laughs> i love that after sultana where did you go i i went to niagara because it was uh, it seemed to be about time that the, the ship that, that loomed pretty large in my childhood would, would be something that I worked on. So Absolutely. I spent the summer as third mate there. 
Uh, Kathleen and I moved to Maine. I worked for Portland Schooner Company through the course of a, a winter, doing a lot of, I did some sailing in the fall, then winter restoration, a little bit more work in the spring. Uh, I signed on as second mate to Pride 2 this in August of 05 in Baltimore, Iowa. There's no better place to be a sailor than to be a Pride of Baltimore 2 sailor in Baltimore, <laughs> Ireland. Because they, they won't accept that there's Maryland written on the transom. They think it should be County Cork because that's where Baltimore is. <laughs> Uh, it's fortunate that the ship has to be at a mooring when she's there because when you go into town, you, you can't buy your own pint. And in fact, I, at the time, uh, I still play a little bit, but at the time I was really heavily into Irish traditional music, was playing with a friend of the ship in, in town on a Friday night at this local pub where we walked in with instruments and they said, okay, here's the deal. You can play one song and if the audience likes it, we'll give you a free pint and you can keep playing. But if, if the people don't like it, you have to get out. Um, <laughs> So they liked it. He's he's a professional musician, so it was easy to to play along with. But we played songs. We played songs. But at the end of the evening, there's a, a small boat ride back to the ship. It's the last one of the of the night, and I had I think three or four pints. People had bought me in front and right. shoved them over to Ronnie and said, "Have a great night." <laughs> um, so yeah, epic. That the friendships that that the ship has had there are are decades old. They were even at that point. Getting Is that the last up. time she went? to Baltimore Island? Yeah, really? the last time really? Island. I've been back there uh, once since just to, to visit some friends uh, that I made on that trip. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah, so I, I got, got on board there, had that great experience, had two weeks of um, exciting sailing, and then the whole rig came down on us. Oh, um, yeah. So the rest of the Europe, tri- um, the rest of my Europe trip was spent putting the ship back together in France. And then I didn't, I, I signed off just before they left to come back um and why did i never realize that you were part of that i don't know i think the english major in me likes to think that if you say demasting it is a intentional like we're um, modifying yes. this boat from being yes. a sailing ship to a motorboat or dismasting is is largely unintentional very and much in unintentional. my experience pretty rapid yes <laughs> For some reason, I had no idea that you were, or I'm sure I did. I'm sure it's back there somewhere. I don't know. I, instead of wishing someone a happy birthday recently, I said Merry Christmas. So here we are. Yeah, it's been one of those weeks. But uh, yeah, right. Pandemic. Time has no meaning. Yeah, that is uh, very exciting, actually. I would not, that is not something I would want to be a part of, but yeah. About it. I think you can still find it. I wrote about it uh, at the, not long afterwards as part of a fundraiser for the ship in Chesapeake Bay magazine and um, and I, for the anniversary, the 10-year anniversary of it, which was now six years ago, um, Marlin Spike was doing a, a sort of revisitation of the, that was a bad year for tall ships. There were a bunch of things that happened in, in sort of early, from early 05 through uh, late 06. So, and that was one of them. He was revisiting some of those things. So I re- I wrote the story again. I think they still have that somewhere. Yeah, I'll look for it. If I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes, if that's okay. Yeah, I'll sure. Absolutely. Show notes. Yeah. So I think, I think my next question is, you know, why, why tall ships? Why, you know, you came to it and you've kind of, you've kind of bopped in and out too over your career. I know that you recently uh, were at UVA doing is it urban planning? Yeah, I was in urban and environmental planning there. And it yeah. just was, I think that, that that's something that I'm definitely interested in. Mm-hmm. The program was much more high level theoretical and less practical than I was interested in. 
it, and UVA is a huge R1 university where research is a, a bigger focus. So right, it right. wasn't the detail that I had two amazing, well, I had a lot of amazing professors there, like, don't get me wrong, but right. um, two of them, the, the best two I had were adjuncts who had done other things. So, and in fact, I ended up working for the one woman for a summer and she runs a nonprofit called the Green Infrastructure Center that does large scale landscape planning for uh, towns and cities. And we were doing the project's still ongoing, but it was resilient coastal forests and what what's going to happen to them in the next 50 to 100 years of, of climate change and sea level rise. So Ooh, interesting. how do they and continue? Because that's a huge part of the, those green infrastructure services are a huge part of what's what's uh, keeping the planet alive. And, and forests, of course, are like not only providing the air that we breathe, but absorbing some of the carbon. Right absorbing stormwater and as as those get inundated with salt water that's a problem as the climate heats up there's there's more threats from um there's more breeding days for the pests that destroy them right that project was good it was probably the best fit for me in the program and it still wasn't hitting all the it, was, it wasn't ringing all the bells right, right great great and, and great organization but and in the meantime that grace harbor was looking for a port captain where there was a commitment of of being out in command of one of the vessels or running a maintenance period of some sort for about half the year and then managing the logistics the other half. The Pacific Northwest is gorgeous. Yes, um, <laughs> I do not fault you for that. <laughs> the, 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 that era, and, and maybe it's, it's because Lady Washington bringing it kind of full circle, one of the months that I volunteered on her in 2003 was because they were the only other active 18th century vessel that, that that was sort of the same size as Sultana that I could get mm -hmm. on board, and and so that era is fascinating to me. The 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 storytelling that goes along with that, the um, you know Robert Gray was one of the two captains. That's why Grace Harbor is named that. Not that he named it after himself, but when, <laughs> think, he actually named it for um, the 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 guy who first spotted it from the horizon. Um, but when it got on the charts of Vancouver and the other explorers out there, they had heard about it from Robert Gray, so it became uh, Grace yeah. Harbor. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, and the interactions that they have, the, the, what was going on there, that that program, I talked a little bit at the conference about it. The the initial enterprise of Lady Washington and Columbia Red Aviva was to take trade goods to the Pacific Northwest, trade them for sea otter pelts with the tribes of of that area, and then take the sea otter pelts to China to get tea because America and England were no longer trading based right. on the war, the Revolutionary War. So the attempt of that wasn't a, a particularly successful commercial venture, but it led to a lot of first contacts, a lot of, of the charting, for instance, Grays Harbor. Robert Gray also was the first non-native to ever go in and then successfully back out of the Columbia River. So there's some pretty fascinating pieces of history that go along. Oh. As a result, the organizations had long-standing relationships with a lot of the, the, the native tribes that are still, still in existence mm -hmm. in along that, the areas that they sail. And like I said, we had um, representatives from the Macaw Nation just north of where Grace Harbor is at the conference. And, and that was a tremendous experience to be back to, well, not back, I've been there a few times, but to be able to go there, get the ship back there for the first time in almost two decades and have this interaction to reestablish a relationship. And then realize in reading the book that, that we had gotten at the Tribal Cultural Center that the original vessel had traded with the Macaw Nation on three separate occasions. And fortunately, 
that's one of the histories that there were some really bad interactions. There were a lot of right. bloodshed, there were misunderstandings um, and violence that, that erupted. The sailors resorted to cannons instead of diplomacy. But in the, the situations with the Macaw, everything was always peaceful. So that, that's good to revisit that. And hopefully we can, we can continue doing that with other tribes, or keeping the, the relationships that we have and then, and then rekindling new ones. Yeah, absolutely. They've been dormant for, like I said, for 15 years or so. There hadn't been a lot of interaction. Well, it sounds like tall ships just keep pulling you back in just when you think you're out. <laughs> keep pulling you back in, which is a good thing. It's nice having you around. I. It's <laughs> you see that? That was exactly when I told a friend. I told a friend of mine that I had, got, I had taken the Grace Harbor port captain job, and he said, "You're what are you, Michael Corleone?" <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, you're passionate about history. You're passionate about travel. And, uh, and there is an environmental element to it, of course, but uh, I mean, it makes sense. What is it about tall ships that keeps you coming back? I think it's a combination of all those things, the, the, the traditions, the, the self-sufficiency mm -hmm. uh, that goes on. I do, I, we were interviewing someone recently for a job at Grace Harbor who's really into, into survival skills. And Lady Washington is one of the few, a handful, maybe six vessels, four of them active in the fleet, where everything's put together with rope and string, and there's no, there's no shackles, there's very little metal bits. And so oh. we're describing that, yeah, that it usually gets a big surprise, but that's how yeah. they did yeah. Um, And Niagara and Sultana are two of the other ones. So oh, oh, I've got okay. experience with them. <laughs> but that was the era. So we're talking to this person and, and describing, well, this era of seamanship that Lady Washington represents is sort of the survival skills version. Right, <laughs> right. Time, right. You have to, you, um, you, you have to have what um, I've heard described as a high skill, low technology to do those things. So that that's always fascinating to me. The actual history of the vessel matters a lot where where I go, but. Also that you described it too, that experience that you had with your study abroad cohort and right. <laughs> right. friends of mine that I am still in contact with from Japan, there's that experience of, of putting a crew together and, and, and not even if you, even if you personally, if I personally, as the captain don't have the, the bond with them, watching that bond get established between right. the people through the experience is, is something fantastic. And then seeing where the folks go from there is, yeah. is also that, the, in that, you know, seeing what sort of what sticks with people with the, that are involved. For instance, I mean, at the award ceremony a week ago, uh, Sean Burkaw got the award for the reimagination. Re right, yes. Uh, Lauren Mor and then just prior, Lauren Morgans had gotten the one for leadership for, for all the work that they did on Calmar Nickel and, and trying to figure out how to, to not get their, their high-risk volunteer corps in, in a pandemic. So great job. But in the comments of that, because we can't be, we were online and not social, Lauren mentioned that, her SEA trip 23 years ago, Sean was the captain. Yeah, yes. So those sorts of connections are tremendous. And at the same time, you, and you see people that, that take a whole other approach to it and, and end up with skills you never imagined. In one of the last sessions, the, the credentialing session that Bronwyn Livingston created, I was in the breakout room with Sarah Hirsch, who had been a deckhand on yeah. Out of Baltimore two, 11 years ago or so, and and now I'm I'm I was her assistant in in talking about the, the, this process of licensing, which she, she's she's undertaken, and and you, so you see these people that they grab it and go. It's it's an inspiring thing um, to to be a part of. 
It is. It's an inspiring thing to be a mentor too. And that was a big thing that we talked about at the conference was be, being a mentor. And I do feel as though being on board a ship where it's so much of a closed environment, you really get to know each other. <laughs> and watching those uh, relationships form, watching their careers blossom, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and then finding yourself being an assistant to one of your former deckhands. <laughs> That's the, I, that's the goal, right? That's the goal. It is absolutely. You want to rise them up. You want this. You want this. Uh, you want this community to to keep to keep going. So you have to. You can't keep anyone. You can't hold anyone down. You have to lift each other up. Which it sounds kind of cheesy, but <laughs> here we are. <laughs> yeah, one of the funnier instances that takes on that that I've seen is when I first went out to Grace Harbor as relief captain in 2018. The first weekend I was there, the Hawaiian Chieftain was still operating, and there were they. Grace Harbor is famous for doing these uh, when they had the two ships doing these battle sails, which are these mm-hmm. this nautical historical theater essentially, where you sail around and, and fire off these blank rounds, and and it's essential in that stage to get the the passengers involved as an audience. Most of them are there already, but you you can rile them up, and the the captain of Hawaiian Chieftain at the time was another pride to deckhand Brennan Reed and so he took the Star Wars approach and saying hey look the captain of the other ship was was my captain whatever eight years ago and so the Jedi code the last step in fully becoming captains you have to battle your former master or what, <laughs> your former captain um so a, a funny way to look at it I love that <laughs> I thought he was going to say like you were the Darth Vader and he was the he was the Luke Skywalker and it was a bad. I'm sure that's his. <laughs> yeah, he, I think he imagined that that was the. That's fine. I can play the back. That's okay. That's all right. <laughs> well, I think we should end it on a Star Wars note. What better? What better Absolutely. place to end a discussion about journeys and growth and battles than ending it on a Star Wars note? But Jamie, thank you so much it's always a pleasure to catch up with you we don't do it nearly as often as we should although to be honest this is a two-hour conversation that's probably why we don't sure. talk to each other that much <laughs> we need to we need to ration it out better a pleasure to be here and i think that tall ships are in many ways feel when you're out there like you're in a galaxy far far away but the, yes. the history is from long long ago so sure yes yes i love it all the star well, wars references should be us more <laughs> All right. Thank you, my friend. I will talk to you soon. Thank you and fair winds to everybody listening. A bark, a brig, and a schooner walk into a bar is a Tall Ships America production. Theme music provided by Kebab Studios. You can find us in all the usual places, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Tall Ships America, and on our website at tallshipsamerica.org. Send us your sea stories or drop us a line at manager at tallshipsamerica.org. As always, be sure to support your local tall ship 